Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I am speaking with Danila Popcha about observability and sustainability. If you haven't listened to part one, please go ahead and do. And we've got some great background on Danilo, uh, his role, and everything that you can think about as a developer around creating a you know modern application that is, is sustainable and that you can uh, incorporate observability in order to metric properly. We thought it would be good to have two parts here so that we can kind of jump into particular services. How do you get started as a developer? Is there tools that AWS provides to think about these things? Let's just jump right into it. Uh, Danila, when we, we ended the conversation, we were just getting into like how to optimize some of these things and how to, how to think about things. Where do you, is there, is there reports and dashboards? How do you see the sizing of things? Is there tooling that, that we provide uh, where we can forecast and do different stuff like that? Hi everyone. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a, a very nice tool that we made available at the beginning of this year. It's the AWS Customer Carbon Footprint tool. It's now oh, again uh, observability in a way. Now it tells you, uh, it helps you track now and measure uh, the carbon emission not generated from your AWS usage. It's an aggregate value, but it's very interesting because you can follow it over time. And it also show the, the difference of the carbon emission uh, as AWS moves forward with path to 100% renewable uh, power in, in its data center. We have this target wow. for 2025. So that means that even if you just don't change anything, you will see that there will be more renewable energy usage and less carbon footprint in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in, your, in your AWS usage. And then on top of that, what I always suggest is that you know, as customers, uh, we can do more. It's uh, it's our part of the shared responsibility. Yeah, I love that. So I can go in there today and see things. And then over time, I'm going to see improvements both from what I'm doing and what AWS has promised. Exactly, exactly. It's a, it's a good way to see that things are improving, even if you don't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's let's break apart like different services. How would one optimize with storage? Yeah, so with storage, uh, the, 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 the key objective is really to use less space, less space for less time. Uh, so that means that, you know, as I mentioned previously, you can focus on the requirements. Maybe they ask you to store something for three years, but maybe one year is enough. Uh, and then how you store data. So compression, for example, is really important. There is a, a, a very nice internal case study from an AWS project where we were uh, storing logs. Uh, and of course, when we do that at AWS scale is a, a lot of logs and, and they uh, switch compression. Uh, so they, they moved from, I think it was, uh, uh, it was GZIP uh, to uh, Z standard. That is a, a new standard uh, compression algorithm that is very, very efficient. Uh, it's normally 30% more efficient than GZIP. And if you use other standards, can be many or almost an order of magnitude more more efficient. And the short story is that by just this switch, uh, we we managed to reduce storage by one exabyte. So that's a lot of hard drives. Yeah, and I imagine it, it depends on the type of things that you're storing too. And it, coming from um, you know an area where you have these vast language models, right? In in NLU, or you get into things like data lakes, and you've trained a model. Like, how long does that data stay relevant? I like how you've you've you focused on the timing of things. You know, don't store or keep something longer than you need, uh, as this stuff starts to starts to build up. Over time, one of the 
one of the really cool things, <laughs> this is just me geeking out for a little bit, but like being, and you're, you may be on these emails that you get to see as a, as an AWS employee, but I see a lot of the stuff come from dev tools is just internally what customers don't see. And a lot of, a lot of times, you know, as stuff advances internally, was, you'll see that be passed on to customers. But like what you said with the zip, I was just seeing an email this morning around the size of how something was in stored, uh, was stored internally and then how much there's a cost savings and the then the efficiency and the speed of like measuring in milliseconds and 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 things like that is that something to think about with storage too like i know we we have different tierings depending on the speed you know if it's if it's a backup i don't need really quick access to it and it's something that i can have a a, a different sla around getting that does that like factor in is there is there a a smart way to think about that and really how I can uh, optimize access to storage and not just the, you know, the amount of time that I'm actually storing. Absolutely, absolutely. And in, with storage, we have this terminology that we don't normally define you know, a hot or warm storage is, is a storage where you can access the data immediately. Uh, cold storage is a storage where you need some time uh, to, to retrieve the data. And, and, and that's definitely where you need to focus. So there are different ways to do that. But for example, for long-term archival, I see many customers use uh, S3, uh, Amazon S3, you know, as an object storage that allows you to uh, use different storage classes. So you can use uh, uh, explicitly uh, one that is a colder storage class, like the uh, Glacier Deep Archive, because you know that having 12 hours to retrieve the data is enough for your SLA, for your requirements. Uh, but if you need to access data immediately, uh, S3 has also an, uh, a, a, an option that is using some smartness behind the scene that is called the Intelligent Tyrion Storage Class. In that, way, in that case, it's, it's, uh, it's just S3 that will automatically optimize the storage class for you based on how you access the data. And, uh, and that uh -huh. can save a lot. I think we, uh, we shared publicly a story about Amazon Photos recently where they use this and this provided lots of saving for the team, no? because internal Amazon team pay AWS when they use it. Uh, but they also, uh, it's also saved a lot of energy. That's another nice link in the, with, when you have a pay-per-use model like in the cloud. Now, if you pay-per-use, normally if you reduce your cost, you use less. And if you use less, normally you also consume less energy. So if you reduce your AWS bill, most of the times you also reduce your energy footprint. That's true. What about with compute now in, in terms of, oh gosh, it, it, there's so many different things, right? Peak workloads, you know, scheduling, batch jobs, all of that. How do you think in terms of that with compute? And with compute, you can do many things, as you said. Uh, probably one thing that not a lot of people think about is really scheduling batch jobs. If you think of compute-heavy Workloads, most of them are, are, are jobs that we schedule at some specific time, maybe once a day, once a week. And, and what we do normally, we, we, we schedule them uh, perfectly on the hour, like at noon, at midnight, run this, uh, run this workload. The problem is that if you have a shared data center like AWS, all the customers use the beginning of the hour, and this creates <laughs> a huge peak. Uh, especially for some hours. And as you can imagine, that's not improve, helping with efficiency. So one small thing that customers can do in their responsibility is to use what we call sustainable scheduling. It's, uh, it's just adding a, a random offset or a jitter, if you want, to, to the round numbers that we normally use. So schedule your 
uh, batch job maybe to start at 9.32 a.m. or 11.37 p.m., but not right on the hour because otherwise thousands of customers will do the same and you will generate a peak that will uh, not be efficient to process. And also another thing, uh, when, when I grew up in Italy, there was this idea that if you run things during the night was better. So there was also a discount if you use like the, the washing machine during the night, uh, because at the time production was mostly coal based. So you yeah. don't want to increase the peaks during the day. So you use during the night where you can burn coal and you don't, uh, uh, and otherwise nobody would use the resources. Now it's different because a lot of renewable resources uh, uh, come from solar and solar is available only during the day and when there is uh, a good weather. So if, if you, if you use uh, renewable energy uh, in, in your uh, data center, uh, schedule things for when you have uh, a good day, especially during the, 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 the days so of late mornings, it's, it's a good time because there's more renewable energy available. And one of the problems of renewable energy currently is storing renewable energy efficiently for a long period of time. So if, you, if we use it when it's produced, it's always better. Yeah, and that's why I it's 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 interesting, right? When you think about the, those different kinds of energy, because you have things like hydro, and if, so if you've got a dam and you've got water, you have kind of a constant flow versus sun, uh, and then you have other things like wind, uh, and maybe it's a it's a combination of of all those different things. I love how you said like at the times because of the renewable, it, things can happen at different times, and there can be more energy available. I've never thought of it that way. I was always thinking in terms of like kilowatt hour because the electrical company always charges you based on demand. So it's like if you do if you do your laundry at night, you may be getting a different kilowatt. And I never like I, I don't know if anybody's gotten as um, observable <laughs> of their electric bill like this, but where I am in Pennsylvania, that rate changes throughout the day. So I can fluctuate between like eight cents kilowatt hour and six, uh, six cents a kilowatt hour, depending on what time we're doing stuff. Not that my family doesn't run the dishwasher and the, actually we do the dishwasher at night now that I think about <laughs> it. So that'd be, it would be very interesting to kind of see that, that rate. Yeah, I think now that knowledge of the energy mix you're using is something that will become more transparent in the future. We're still not there, but in the future, yeah. you know, in, at home, at work, whatever, we will have uh, some way of knowing, okay, in this specific time, I'm using this energy mix, so it's more efficient or less. This can help be do better uh, informed decisions. Right. And especially now with, I mean, you hear uh, issues with grids, you hear about it in Europe, obviously in the US, we had issues with the Texas grids uh, a year or two ago. And a lot of that comes around. I think for most people, electricity is just magic. You know, it's either there or it's not. And you're not thinking about that impact on a grid uh, when every, unless it's summertime and everyone turns on their air conditioning at the same exact time. Uh, it's an interesting thought to think about that in terms of uh, the services that you're using and how you're building. And is that something I should actually be thinking about in terms of algorithms too? Like if I'm creating a more efficient algorithm, am I actually helping out through those means as well? Yes, of course. And the, the, if the, the, the modern CPUs are incredibly powerful and most of the times we don't use all the CPU cycles because uh, we use uh, uh, interpreted algorithm uh, languages or maybe we use uh, we use algorithms that are efficient, and maybe we have you know, some 
something waiting for something else to happen, waiting for I.O., internal locks. So finding efficient algorithms is, is really critical. And again, on the cloud, if you reduce CPU consumption, you probably also save some money. So you do good for the environment and save some money. And a, a good example of that is, for example, processing JSON documents. JSON currently is everywhere. Now it's in the logs that we write. It's in the uh, on the network when we call APIs. So processing JSON in an efficient way is important. Uh, and there is a, 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 an open source library. It's called SIMD. JSON that is using some advanced instructions that many of the modern processors uh, implement that allows these processors to uh, uh, process uh, numbers, but in this JSON documents in parallel. Uh, so in, in every instruction cycle will do more things in parallel instead of one thing at a time. Uh, so just normally by swapping this library, you can make processing JSON more efficient. And I expect these kind of things will slowly move into the standard libraries of the programming languages that we use. Love it. And I'll, uh, I'll add that to the show notes. What about like instance types? Like I know we have different processors for the different instances out there, putting things on GPUs, uh, the different Graviton type of uh, processors. How does that all play into this? But you should always choose you know, the right instance type for your workload. It's, again, it saves you money and it's better for the environment. So you should see how much CPU and memory you really need. And you can tailor those you now for uh, virtual machine, for containers. Uh, with Fargate, you can tailor that. With Lambda Function, you can choose you know, the tailor the memory and, and that will also affect the CPU that you use. Uh, so that's very important. And then you also have you know, families that use different CPU architectures. So if you can accelerate a workload with a GPU, that's normally something that can give a lot of benefit. Uh, if you're doing machine learning inference, for example, uh, and, and this is something where a lot of energy nowadays is consumed. Now you, you mentioned this huge uh, machine learning models that are now being used for uh, language processing, for uh, audio processing, uh, for image processing. Uh, and uh, for uh, for uh, running inference, we have a custom processor that we implemented and designed and implemented in AWS that is AWS Inferentia, that is two times uh, uh, higher in performance per watt compared to, for example, traditional G4 instances that use traditional GPUs for, in for inference. So just by swapping that, you can almost half of your uh, energy consumption for inference. Yeah, yeah, custom silicon to it's giving you more performance per kilowatt is is awesome. What about you, you mentioned languages? Do you have a, a favorite language or a language as, as an example out there that is, you know, maybe something that kind of fits into this space? Yeah, I think as developers we're getting used a lot to interpreted languages. And they are very fast in the development cycle, but they're not so efficient when you're actually uh, running your workload in production. And that's normally where you consume energies long term. Now, as a long term, as a developer, you always dream of my software will be used in production for 10 years, but also think that it will consume energy for 10 years. So right. if you can do something there, it's better. <laughs> So one language that is very efficient and very popular nowadays, I think it's the most loved language currently by developers is Rust. And uh, no, yeah. at AWS, we're investing a lot in, in, in Rust. Now, some of the things that we built, you now there's this open source project that we created that is Firecracker, is creating a micro VM the, where we run both uh, Lambda function and also Fargate containers. And it's open source for anyone to use it. 
uh, it's incredibly efficient and it's an example of uh, using Rust to uh, gain efficiency in production uh, and both for uh, for internal cost but also for uh, for energy consumption. Similarly, we have Bottle Rocket. It's also another open source project that provides the the the, the, the basic uh, operating system to run containers on top. And this is again open source and it's uh, built with uh, and configured with Rust. So there's a lot of love you now by developers and also by AWS to the Rust community. Uh, there's also some a specific project that I love with Rust. Uh, so Rust, it's also very secure you now with the way memory works. You know, because right. you borrow memory, you pass it to a function so that you, you avoid some of the memory use usage that you have with traditional languages. But when you want to run things in parallel, there are things like Ryan that is a, 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 a library that allows you to run things in parallel with very, very clean syntax. And also, if you want to run things asynchronously, asynchronously, again, is a way to avoid locks. There's uh, Tokyo. It's another very popular library that I, that I think uh, developers that approach Rust should have a look at. I love it. I've had the pleasure of talking to uh, the Rust team. Uh, they they sit in, in DevTools and just the passion and the care they have for the, for the community, too. It's uh, definitely... I, I promise I'll have someone on the the podcast uh, at, at some point around there, and I think it's uh, it's great to see languages thinking about that and and sustainability and and uh, security. You, you mentioned Lambda and Fargate uh, when you were talking a little bit about uh, Firecracker. What advice or you know best practices would you give around uh, sustainability with serverless? Personally, I love serverless architecture, so I might be biased here, but <laughs> the idea is, <laughs> is that no, with, uh, with, uh, with serverless architecture, you're rising the bar of the shared responsibility. The provider can do more to optimize you know, the, the, the platform for you, uh, so you, you have to do less. So if you use uh, 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 containers or your own EC2 infrastructure, you need to write sites, you know, the cluster infrastructure to run your containers. If you use too many instances or too much memory, that's wasted. It's a waste of money and it's a waste of energy. So with uh, with Fargate, you can just run the container of the sites that you want, uh, and 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 we will optimize the infrastructure uh, used to do that because it's our our job as as cloud provider. Similarly, with Lambda, we do the same. No, only you only use uh, pay and use the CPU when the function, the serverless function, is running with AWS Lambda, and we do everything in our power to that. In a, in a more efficient way. Uh, uh, as many people know, when we launched Lambda, uh, we didn't trust uh, containers uh, security across different customers. So we were using dedicated EC2 instances uh, for each customer. And if uh, a customer was running only a Lambda function, it would, for the time this Lambda function was running, that was the only customer using the EC2 instance. Uh, to, uh, to improve on that, we created Firecracker, the project that I just mentioned, to run micro VMs where containers can live inside, uh, and so with very or no little, uh, or very little or no uh, uh, consume of resources for the for the virtualization, you can now run containers at scale and run Lambda function and Firegate inside those micro VMs. So that's that's an example of things not putting together, though, that there's the observability, there's the programming language, uh, there's everything working together to improve the, the energy consumption of a, of a serverless architecture. And also with Lambda, we've seen that the use of ARM architecture with Graviton is very popular because uh, many customers ah. use interpreted languages, no? like Node.js and Python. 
and and with uh, lambda it's very switch to uh, very easy to switch to uh, to to the graviton architecture it's an arm 64 architecture at the end uh, and 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 they reduce their bill and they reduce the energy consumption I, in fact I, I didn't mention graviton before but uh, i think now that's another uh, great asset that you can use also with ec2 and whatever it's an instance type there are many instance types and if we look at graviton 3 for example that is the latest iteration of the processor uh, the Graviton 3-based instances are up to 60% less, uh, consume less energy, 60% less energy for the same performance than comparable EC2 instances. Wow. Yeah, I never even thought of looking at it across the different types of um, CPUs that I might be using on my function. I was always looking at speed, uh, but energy savings and cost and sustainability, all of those things are definitely going to be something on my radar. I think it's it's great to think about. Is it is it also the way that you architect things? We've had episodes that talked about event-driven architectures. We've talked about cues on this podcast, like how you're actually building things in the overall architecture with serverless. Is that something that you recommend or you've, you've seen customers doing? I've seen many customers build event-driven architecture and that's also more energy efficiency because you don't waste resources waiting for something to happen. So instead of building something that waits for a, an API call, you just build something that receives an event when something happens. Uh, and again, now you raise the bar of the shared responsibility because it's then our job as a WS to build something that waits without wasting resources. You just got, if you've just been piquing my interest through this whole conversation, <laughs> is there like an initiative at Amazon? Like I'll put all this in the show notes, but just stuff that goes over data centers, different types of things, even like it could be water, it could be backup battery power. Are there things where listeners can go find out more information online uh, if they're curious about sustainability across all the different fulfillment centers? Yes, yes, there is. Uh, I think there's uh, uh, at least two, three presentations that we did at reInvent at the end of last year that are oh, nice. really on, on the topic. Uh, there is one really on how we build the, the new generation of data centers that we use. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, uh, sustainability is not only uh, energy, reducing the energy use, also the way we use water. So using water that is not drinkable, uh, recycling the water that we use to cool down the data centers. And there's a lot of information in those sessions. And then there are a few reports. I think we published these reports uh, uh, across different uh, areas of the globe, like there is one for the US, Americas, one for uh, for EMEA, and one for uh, Asia Pacific, where we there are there's this study that shows now considering the local uh, energy mix and how energy is produced, what is the advantage of using a cloud provider like AWS to run your workloads. All right, and I'll put that in the show notes. It's, I definitely want to check that out. What would be your your top couple of takeaways for? people interested and they're listening to this and now they're thinking about observability and sustainability. Any gotchas, uh, anything really to, to that you want people to take with them? Oh, really what we discussed today. So start by questioning your requirements. Understand what you really need to do because sometimes we exaggerate in the, in the requirements phase. Uh, and then build an observability platform that you can use both for finding your bugs, solving your bugs, but also to understand where compute and storage are being used by your architecture, by your maybe hybrid distributed microservice architecture, so that then you can decide where to focus your energy and where you want to improve and get the best results. Love it. What's got you excited in this space? I think that 
climate change is having an impact on all of us. Uh, it's something that I, uh, in the past was uh, shown in a scale of decades. Now, almost every year, we see something strange happening across the globe. So I think we really need to do a better job uh, for the future. And that's where now the word sustainable that we define at the beginning of the first episode is important. We need to think about what we need today, but we also need to think about we need, what we need tomorrow. Well said. Where can, where can folks find you online? So I'm mostly on Twitter as Danilop. Uh, normally I use Danilop, so my name and the first letter of the family name everywhere. You can find me on LinkedIn as well and happy to engage and have conversations around these two topics that I love. Great. Thank you so much. I, I super enjoyed this conversation and uh, I'll make sure I add all the great links to the show notes for folks to check out. Thank you for having me.